And Joel says, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. There can be no normal church life without liturgy. Sacraments need form. The order of worship must have some definite pattern. Liturgy in the church is a foretaste of the eternal song of praise, an earthly expression of that which is the content of the eternity and the basic melody of creation, a never-ending thanksgiving to the Creator and Father of all things. Within its earthly poverty, liturgy contains something of the beauty of the heavenly, the blessed sense of the nearness of the eternal, and the joy of being privileged to sacrifice everything in order to be one with Christ. Christian worship is the earthly picture of the heavenly and eternal reality that every nation and tribe rallies around the banner of Christ, that every knee will bow and that every tongue will confess. There is something primitive about worship in a Genesis sense. It is who we are because it is the way God made us. We are worshipers, all of us, Atheists and religious alike, we all worship. Sunday morning is far more about God's actions than human action. Sunday is about what God has done for us. It is the story of Christ in poetry and prose. This is what sinners need before they are pushed back out into the world. Sunday is for receiving God's good gifts in faith. The rest of the week is for worship. The divine service teaches a whole way of life as it tells the world its story. We are entering a different world, stepping on holy ground. For this world is where Christ's presence permeates everything. A world that has its own language and rhythm, its own music and sounds, its own smells and tastes. A world that is separate and distinct from the world of your work or home. Separate from the evening news or your favorite mall. This is the world God intended it to be, a world transformed by the presence of Jesus Christ, the creator of the cosmos, who invaded our world to make right what had gone wrong and who continues to make right what is wrong even now, here among us, as he speaks to us in his word, gives us to eat and drink of his body and blood, and thereby offers us forgiveness of sins, offers us his life and salvation from our enemies. The Christian culture of worship is that of Christ, a first-century Palestinian Jew who is, at the same time, the eternal Son of God. And so have said just a few Lutherans as they thought out and wrote concerning the liturgy of the divine service, of what the church has been gathered around and for from the very beginning ever since the Holy Spirit was given in word and sacrament at Pentecost. The words I spoke first from the Swedish Bishop Bo Gertz, a professor at Wisconsin Lutheran College, Michael Berg, and then finally Arthur Just from our Fort Wayne Seminary. Their words speak to just why Luther's Reformation was actually conservative, contra to the liberal wrought by the Anabaptists 
and later reformed. For Luther reformed only that which had gotten covered under the layers of ritual and bad theology to where, by the time of the 16th century, the divine service had been completely turned upside down. An action where the priests, on behalf of the less holy laity, would perform the sacrifices they believed needed to gain the favor of God. But Luther turned it back the right way. Not from us to God, but from God to us. And so when he first reformed the Mass, and yes, that is how even the Augsburg Confession refers to the divine service, the Mass. It's not just a Catholic word. First doing in 1523 and then later in 1526. How he reformed it by first taking it so that it would be spoken in the German language so that people could hear and understand. Everything else that he did was to clear out what was covering and obscuring the heart and soul of the church's work. And that is the giving of Jesus Christ as the salvation of the world to all who believe. I know I have mentioned it before. I, I believe I've even put it on a bulletin co cover once. But for Luther, worship was to be what Lucas Chronic would paint on the altar of the, of the town church in Wittenberg. And if you notice there, you have Luther on the one side, the congregation on the other, and Christ Jesus in the middle, crucified for the sins of the world. And for Luther, all of Luther, all of worship was to point to Jesus and to look and adore him. For Jesus Christ crucified is front and center. And everything and everybody must be focused on him. Which makes it then, I believe, good practice to remember the things of our worship and even to explore them. Not simply to understand what we do, but finally to gain an appreciation for why we do what we do. And so this time during our Lent will be spent on taking up the different parts of the liturgy, drawn from setting three in the, of the divine service in the LSB, which itself was adapted from the common service of 1888, the very first general American Lutheran rite of worship in English. And everything we will do these Wednesdays will be according to Chronic's paintings and Luther's insistence that everything we do here is to help us see how we are to draw our attention and worship to where we are ultimately heading in Lent. And that is the Holy Week. To where our crucified Lord is there. He who made us his own by saving and redeeming us lost and condemned creatures, as Luther says in the Catechism, and doing so with his holy precious blood and his innocent suffering and death. And so I invite you to open to page 184 in your hymnal so you can follow along just a bit. And, and we begin here because this is where Luther, in the 95 Theses written in 1517, declared that all the world must live. And that is a life of repentance. 
Now, even at the beginning of the Reformation, the one aspect of the confession of sins that Luther kept in the same place as, that he, as he had received it was this. And it was not, you see, at the beginning of worship, but confession was always private before the pastor in preparation for the reception of the Lord's Supper. In fact, this is what we confess in the Augsburg Confession, Article 11. That of confession, we say that private absolution ought to be retained in the churches. Although in confession, an enumeration of all sins, he says, is not necessary, for it is impossible to, according to the psalm, who can understand his errors. And so even though it was set in the private, we will say that the corporate practice did find its way quite early in the Reformation. Already by 1525 in the Nuremberg Missal, and then finally adopted as a public rite in Wittenberg by 1559. But some of our older members, they have made known to me, will remember their fathers going to register for communion the day before with the pastor. That was the, that was the original way it was done. And part of what the father was doing there was confession. The father doing it for the sake of the family. Yet even as the confessional lost place in the life of the congregation, the church always knew that forgiveness needed to be given. And so, in replace of that, the rite of public confession begins where, uh, uh, is at the very beginning. Actually, even before we officially start the divine service, which happens at the introit. And it's because, like Moses was instructed at the burning bush, the unholy cannot approach the holy God. And so those who find themselves guilty under the condemnation of the law must first find themselves with their sins removed in order to approach God. But as, Peter, but as Jesus points out tonight in the gospel, such things cannot be attained through our mechanizations. For our Father sees in secret, he says, and outward practices of piety cannot atone for the inward need of his reward. But here is also something that first needs to be understood. You see, we're not forgiven in our repentance simply because we confess our sins. If we were forgiven by what we do, well, it would then be turned into a system right back what Luther escaped from, of work and reward. And you would actually either have no idea whether you have repented enough or whether your, conf your confession was entirely sincere, and so your forgiveness would always be in doubt. That's what Luther learned in the monastery he would confess for hours upon hours, and leaving the confessional, he would run back there because he realized he had forgotten something again. But you see, faith alone saves us. Faith alone in the death and resurrection of the Son of God. It is as Paul places it and makes it clear and succinct. It is for our sake that the Father made the Son to be sin who knew no sin so that in the Son we now might become the righteousness of God. And thus forgiveness 
is grace. It's wholly and completely God's work of mercy. It is his to give out, and he does such. Again, as Jesus reminds in Matthew, not for what we do, but for whom we believe. This is what it means, Jesus says, to practice righteousness before the Father and not the world. This is what it means of not letting your left hand know what the right is doing. Thus, the forgiveness one receives isn't simply because we've repented, but we actually repent because we already understand and believe this God has forgiven us in the death and resurrection of the Son. That is how we place our treasures in heaven, where moth and rust cannot destroy. This is what the prophet Joel is saying, that the Lord is jealous for his land, and he had, he has, pity on his people. Thus, confession and absolution that we enter into is entirely addressed to God. And it is spoken according to our already faith in this God and Lord that we have come to trust. And so as Arthur Justs also says, this is how we prepare ourselves to approach the holy God. But we do so, again, as Luther Reed, the most premier liturgical scholar of the 20th century states, we do it as an affirmation of our faith. It's a prayer of our profession. Confession is an approach similar to a hymn. Or the words, Our Father, we pray at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer. In other words, we confess because we already know this God. And we're simply coming again into his presence to hear him. And this is why the rite, as you note in your hymnal, says that we can and really should begin with the sign of the cross made over ourselves much like the cross that is on your foreheads this evening. Because that is the sign that was first made upon you at your baptism. And this is good because confession is merely a return back to the baptismal font. That your confession is serving as a reminder of the saving work of Christ. And the sign of the cross is, again from Luther Reed, an emblem of the mercy of God that has been given to you. And so as we invoke his name, we invoke the name of the saving God with both word and actions. It is to remind ourselves, as Carl Schalk says, that we have been gathered once again by the Holy Spirit today to have the forgiveness and grace of our God announced to us again. And thus the sign of the cross made again is the physical action just as water in your baptism first was. A reminder of that spiritual mercy that is being bestowed by this God who has done and continues to do nothing but to save his own by forgiving us of our sins and iniquities. For we indeed, as we confess with David in the 51st Psalm, are forever and daily in need of his abundant mercy to be given to us 
And listen here, not according to what we have done, but is mercy given to us according to his steadfast love, which is before us. That we need to be washed thoroughly from our iniquity and cleansed from our sins, and not only when we once time goes to the font, but always, daily and forever. For it is in the confession and hearing of the absolution that, that it, our clean hearts and our right spirit is being remade and created in us again. For there we are having, as the Holy Spirit come into our ears, we hear the joy of his salvation. And so David places, if you note in the psalm, the entire work of forgiveness in the hands and grace of God. Why does he ask God to open his lips? So that from them he might then declare the praise of this God who delivers us from the, our blood guiltiness by righteousness given. And so the sacrifices that God demands isn't your works isn't what you can do, isn't even really the words of your confession. It's the reason why you come to confession. Because the sacrifice God demands is a broken heart, a contrite heart that looks to him because it has come to know and it knows that it has nowhere else it can look for mercy. And so within the words that we begin the, in setting three, you note how it is all scripture words, speaking of how God's action of forgiveness is to us, and our confession then is flowing out from the belief that our God is already a gracious God we can trust. And so from Hebrews 10, the pastor stands and calls forth for us to draw us to draw near to the Father because we know what the Son has done to prepare the way to Him. We confess from Psalm 124 that our only help is in the name of this Lord who made all things. And Psalm 32 reminds us that we can confess our transgressions because we know already that this Lord is the forgiver of iniquity. And so we see how confession is simply us admitting our sinful nature and unclean life. Not really to the Father, who already knows the secrets of your heart, but to us, to ourselves. That confession is us admitting that we need help. We are telling ourselves we need eternal help if we are to find any hope in this life and the next. This is why only Lutherans truly understand not only sin, but the nature of sin. In setting three, we are the only ones that say, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you. In our other settings, we might say, it is by nature we confess that we are sinful and unclean. And again, you're not reminding God of that. He already knows who you are. Really, you're talking to yourself here as you're praying to God because you're placing yourself where you are able to now hear and actually hear what your God is going to say to you now. And so, as Joel reminds, 
your God will ensure that you will hear and receive the forgiveness he has already died and was raised for. That now those whom the Lord has sent, his ambassadors, as Paul speaks about, are those who have been sent with the message of God upon their lips. And so it is now the priests, the pastors, those who stand between the vestibule and the altar, between you and your God. And they are here to do nothing but to declare that the sin that you have which once crucified your Lord, those iniquities with which you are forever committing in your lack of trust in this Lord, the transgressions that you achieve as you forget your Lord and neighbor for your own desire. You see, God sends men. I have been sent to stand before you. And as the liturgy asserts, when I stand there, I stand there in the stead, in the place, as though Christ himself was standing before you. And the words I say are under his authority, meaning that as you hear and believe me, you do so as you would hear and believe Christ himself. And what does the pastor say? Try harder to make sure God accepts your forgiveness? No. Do a little bit more and you will be certain that God will be happy. Absolutely not. No, the pastor is there to simply declare what Christ has already said over you. Just as he forgave his sin, uh, from the cross those who had sinned against him, but well, those words were spoken to you there at Calvary. And so in the words of the absolution, the pastor is bringing the past into the present. And declaring now that the same God that you sin against is the same God who once died and rose for you. And is the very God who now forgives you, the Savior who was made your sin, so that you might be made his righteousness. For you see, that is who your God is. And this is what your faith in him now receives. Because your God is your God. The God who is for you. The God who creates and redeems and saves you all for his sake and want. This is why Paul can say in Corinthians, it doesn't matter the where, when, what, or why of your life. That even in the midst of everything we go through, your God is your God, the one who moved heaven and earth so to have you and have you eternally. And Paul says these words because he was hardly clueless in the state of the world. Nor is he saying faith will make everything easier for you. If anything, Paul says your faith brings on the sufferings of this age. But when you have faith in this God as your God, you will now see that he is there in the midst of your affliction, hardships, and sleepless nights. The one who knows and honors you even as the world refuses and rejects you. The God who is there is in the midst of your sorrow, suffering, and death. 
And as he is there with you, he is there giving you his forgiveness. And as Luther says in the Catechism, wherever there is the forgiveness of your sins, life and salvation are surely to be found. And so as you begin another Lent, feeling those ashes upon your forehead this evening, let the words of the absolution, let the words you have already heard come from my mouth, become for you more real and firm, more full and final, more true and eternal than any of the sin, death, and dust that stalks you in the night. For you see, you have the call, not just today or even the next 40-odd days, but the call to forever, as Joel reminds us, to return to the Lord your God. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. That it is by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, Michael Mittendorf affirms, you can now, by preparing for and heading towards in our Lenten practices of having an understanding that the liturgy gives us his absolving word, which is already uttering the, dev- the definite response to all the accusations that the devil, the world, and your sinful self will make. For God's decisive declaration of righteousness prevails, Mittendorf says over every charge, both now and on the final day of judgment. And if you want to find such good news, it is only to be found in this old world right here, in the divine service, the place where, as Daniel Egger eloquently states, we receive God's richest gifts, forgiveness of sins, and the assurance of eternal life in the forever presence of Christ. Glory be to our God alone. Amen.